1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. From Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. And I'm Russell Shoemaker. Stephanie? Yes? I drew a little uh, magic circle, a protective magic circle around our, around our podcasting studio, because I'm pretty sure this episode is cursed. I mean, we recorded it once. And our computer crashed. And then we recorded it again. And then our microphones sounded like robotic... Uh, I don't know, like, like 19... auto, not even auto tune, cool robot. Yeah, like, like. auto tune was invented <laughs> in in 1942. Uh, so we recorded it a third time, and we rightfully sounded just pit, like pissed, like you all didn't want to listen. It to was us. not fun. Yeah, we were sloppy. We were half no, asleep. No bueno. So Stephanie, what are we talking about today? For the love of God, the last time, please cut to the chase, listeners. It is finally part two of Las Tres Witches. Yay! The Three Witches. Our episode today will be focused on Leonora Carrington's painting, A House Opposite from 1945, as well as two other works, one by Kati Orna and one by Remedios Faro. Excelente. And listeners, why are you laughing? <laughs> Let me just like... Because I said excelente. Put it in there all suave. Like. Yeah. Listeners, we love you. We love each and every one of you. But I swear to God, if we are murdered by the curse that was placed on this podcast, you will hear our death screams because I'm not recording again. I'm not editing another episode. You'll be dead, though. You'll hear it. You'll be dead. You'll hear it. I'm sorry. That's just all there is to it. I'm not editing it from the grave. You're not editing it from the dead? No. No. So what you get is what you get. I'm sorry. This is a weird energy. It's a weird energy. It is weird. Who's going to send out the free stickers? Come on. Think about let's the stickers. Just, let's just get to it. Okay. Listeners, as always, you can find all the images that we talk about on our website at artslicepod.com and some of the images on our Instagram page at artslicepod. All right. Let's go to the narrative. Finally. <laughs> let's go. We stand in the center of a cross-sectionally cut two-story house. This house operates as a refuge for spirits of all kinds. It is a home. It is a place for nourishment. It is a threshold. A spirit superhighway. Moments before this scene, this house was a liminal space. Before the three witches in the kitchen added the flurry of ingredients that turned the cauldron green a signal that opened the house's doors. Immediately, the house comes alive, and spirits from the attic, the floorboard, the forest outside, all gather towards a dining room table 
that a priestess is already sitting at. Chickens come willingly to the boiling pot to transmute from this life into nourishment for others. Even the vegetables that are brought in have grown faces. And for them, it is not an end. They know they are merely crossing from one threshold to the next. When we look upstairs, we see someone who is sick in bed, whose spirit was rescued in the woods just moments ago. The house's wall is activated as a parallel connector between the two spaces. And we wonder if this dinner is being served in their honor, or if they too, like the chickens, are on the brink of crossing a veil to another dimension. Linear time, space, parality seem to hold no bearing here, which could be an unnerving and panic-inducing sight. But there is no cause for concern, because there is an overwhelming sense of nourishment, care, transformation, but above all, love. Can I ask you a question? Um, uh, okay, I'm just going to ask you anyway. Okay. <laughs> what do you think of when I say witch? Witch? Mm-hmm. Sandwiches? Is that, no? Really? Sandwiches? I mean, by sandwiches, I mean witches hanging out in the sand, like on a beach. Hanging out. They got their big black broomed hat, but they're kicking back. They're soaking up the sun. They're getting their tan on. I was not aware that... They drew a little, like, magic circle around them in the sand, but the warlocks are still coming over, kicking sand in their faces. All right, that was not the answer I was expecting. Uh, (laughs) That's what you asked me. You asked a question, you get a response. True, true. Okay, no. Let me rephrase that question. Okay, rephrase. No. Do you think if you saw Remedios Varro, Katsi Orna, and Leonard Carrington together out on the street, would you think they're witches? Would I, Would it occur to me that, well, okay, how many hyenas are with them? <laughs> First and foremost. Do they have like a black cat <laughs> that talks on their shoulders? Do okay. they have like a an old-timey soda fountain drink that they're sipping on pouring tequila in? Are they casting spells? You've got me. I I don't know. Okay. Am I okay, uh, I don't think so. I mean, Elsie, she kind of has a a witch hairdo, like a witch hat hair. She has witch hat hair. So I might think she was a witch. Oh, like, even you if, know if what? A I could see that. There. Yeah, like it looks like she stuck well, her. Because she usually wore it up on a in a bun, in like a, a messy bun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it looks like it was shoved in like that cone witch hat. And, and witches, <laughs> please, do not curse us. We know you don't wear those hats. I mean, it's cool if you do. I'm sure some some of you might. No, I guess the the answer is I probably would. I would just think they were cool, cool ladies. Minus all the props. Oh, I'm sorry. They're not props. Those are real things. I if they had too many anybody. props, if they had like a hyena, if they had the cat that talked, if they had the witch hats on, I, I would probably think they're a little bit ridiculous. That's quite an image. But they I are just... surrealists. So I mean, surrealists were a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, okay. So yes and no. So that was a complicated question. Is I it, guess yeah. that was a complicated question to ask. You, you should know by now. I don't give straightforward answers. Well, so you may not have known by just looking at them, but actually, Varro, Kati, and LC were very much into witchcraft. Okay. They would even go to the market and buy, you know, ingredients that they needed to make potions. Um, I guess that would give them away after. <laughs> what kind they of market collected. has potions? You mean potion ingredients? Yeah. Uh, apparently, they would go to the Mercado de Sonora, the okay. market of Sonora. <laughs> the market of witchcraft. It, sure, famous. Uh, 
I guess, right? That's probably yeah. a secret aisle code. Aisle 13, a couple cats you got to step over to get in. Black cats you got to step over to get to the aisle. That's what gives it away, right? The yeah. like, cluster of cats. And God around. forbid if you just are shopping for a broom and you accidentally stumble across that aisle. Oof. No, but seriously, this this is where they would get all of their like witchy equipment or ingredients. Yeah. Like This was the witch depot, yeah. I guess. The witch depot. <laughs> witch depot. The witch depot. Yeah, but it's hard to ask for directions. Anyway. Yeah. Well, anyway, it was a really famous market in Mexico City, and that's that was their go-to. So Varro and Elsie were actually a little bit fangirly. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I just made that word up, but it's true. Uh, so apparently they wrote into Gerald Gardner. They wrote to Gerald Gardner. Ah, yes. The Gerald Gardner, of course. He's in all those girly ma- the girly mags. All the witchy girly mags, oh, maybe. The teen, the teen witch mags. So he wrote a book called Witchcraft Today, which was one of a kind at the time. They love the book, and Elsie actually read it to Varro <laughs> because she she didn't speak English very well. Oh. Yes, and then Elsie translated the letter. Um, basically, they were just saying how they were witches. They practiced witchcraft and how much they enjoyed practicing magic in Mexico uh, because it was still it was still very much alive in the culture. So that's kind of cute, kind of sweet. So they appreciated his book. Yes. All his hard research. Got it. They also did think, though, that he might be particularly interested in, in their brand of bragging oh. because he did talk about pre-Hispanic witchcraft in Mexico. Okay. So before the Spanish invaded, there was actually, there were witches. Yep. They thought that might be of interest to him. Sadly to say, he never wrote back. Or I may, maybe he never, never got there. Exactly. Maybe another witch intercepted it, a bad witch. Early on in their time in Mexico, the three witches and a fun house of ex-husbands, current husbands, Ugh. future husbands, Ugh. and other exiled artists from Europe all lived in one large house. Oh, gross. Empty mugs and glasses with coffee residue dot the kitchen, and cigarette smoke lingers in the morning light as the housemates had hurriedly smoked that last cigarette and chugged that last bit of coffee before dashing out of the kitchen and off to work. All the housemates had found jobs doing whatever work they could find to help support one another, pay the bills, and put food on the table. That is, everyone except for Elsie. She stayed behind as she was determined to make a living off painting, which was her passion. So she worked in the house, alone, as the morning turned to afternoon, and finally to evening as the others returned home. Elsie is in this giant, full house. She's divorced uh, Renato LeDuc. Yeah, I was wondering about him. Yeah. Okay. So she divorces him and she actually she actually ran into Max Ernst oh. on her way to Mexico City before they had left Europe. So she knows he's alive now. Yes, she has some relief in that sense, but at the same time she's kind of heartbroken because she's a different person now mm-hmm. having been through what she's been through at the like almost a year of being in an, an instant in mental institution. Yeah. Yeah, she's a different person now. She's and surrounded by hyenas, too, and I think that probably puts Max Ernst off a little bit. <laughs> I mean, they were always there, he's like, right? He, like, wants to hug her, but he's like, oh, a lot of beady eyes out there in the audience. Well, they also may or may not have tried to attack uh, Peggy Guggenheim, which, by the way, <laughs> she and Max Ernst had married, so definitely they were not oh. going to rekindle their romance. Okay. okay. They weren't going to do that. Anyway, 
She falls in love and marries another artist, um, a photographer named Cheeky Vise, and he was one of Kati's friends from the old country. Okay. Yeah. Did he live in that big house? Yes, he did. He was one of the future husbands. (laughs) Um, He was especially kind to hyenas. He must have had a way with the hyenas, yes. Um, They must have accepted him. What do you think? What do you think he had to do to get them to... Probably just had a good laugh, like a nice boisterous laugh. Like so that he could could keep up with the hyenas' laughter? Yeah. Elsie finds out that she is pregnant with her first child uh, when she has started this painting, The House Opposite. So she's really into this new motherhood feeling. She's inspired by the noise and commotion of this full house, right? Filled with people and animals. Which you would think she would be moody, um, which is what I've heard. I would. Who knows? I guess everyone's experience is a little bit different. But anyway... So she is thriving off of the the life that this house is bursting with, right? The one that yeah, she's living in. She's not with. working. Everyone's she's also, working for her. But I mean, you you going to tell the hyena queen to go out and get a job? No. Yeah, one of those housemates is gone. <laughs> so they let they let her get by with it first because of the hyenas and now because she's pregnant and they don't want to upset yeah. the hyena, <laughs> the pregnant hyena the hy- lady. The hyena queen. As our listener <laughs> Stephanie uh, photoshopped for us. Oh, our listener Stephanie? Yeah. That was crazy. Yeah. Why didn't you think of that? That's something you could have thought of. I'm disappointed in you, Russell. Um, I did think of it. It was fan art. Okay. It was, no offense, Stephanie, if you're listening. It was my idea. She just illustrated it for us. She was kind enough to illustrate it for us. Oh, okay. You thought of yeah. it. And Do you she listen to our episodes? Paper. No, I don't. Okay. Interesting. I just show up and I leave just like Elsie. Yep. yep. Anyway, for this work, Elsie was inspired by Italian predellas which are the base of an altarpiece. Mm. So they're made up of decorated panels that depict scenes that are related to the panels above. So what exactly is an altarpiece? Can you explain to our listeners? Sure can. Here we go. (laughs) An altarpiece is an artwork that can be a painting, a sculpture, or a relief that represents a religious subject that was made for placing behind an altar of a Christian church. Altarpieces were one of the most important products of Christian art, especially from the late Middle Ages to the Counter-Reformation. Okay, so just a brief history on the Counter-Reformation. Uh, we got a couple hours to spare. Let's go. Uh, we don't. So these are two beasts that we definitely are not going to tackle today. We're not? No, but we definitely will at some point. So Stephanie has an altarpiece here that you all can look at as well. Uh, there are a cast of characters. Actually, kind of reminds me of a dollhouse that's been like swung open, you know, or oh, like swings open in the middle. Yeah, Think of them as like life-size portraits. Yeah, head to so, toe. Exactly. Tip to toe. And they're part of a larger painting. Right. So on the, the backside of the altarpiece, there are stats like you would have in a... Uh, Baseball cards or comic book cards, like the power stats. So like Lenora Carrington, uh, Dexterity 8, uh, Witchery (laughs) 9, Hyena Control maxed out. I think I remember that from like Pokemon cards. Exactly, exactly. The Patreon, I think you mean. Okay. And then below that on the front (laughs) side is a painted narrative. So they're much smaller. They're at the very bottom. Uh, They actually do look a lot like Elsie's work. Maybe even Varro's work a little bit? Yes, they were absolutely inspired by medieval painters. Absolutely. Okay, so those smaller panels have to do with the larger life-size ones. They're related. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're not just random. Right, so these are the characters, and then these are the characters in action. Yes, exactly, (laughs) exactly. She wanted to take this opportunity to experiment Mm -hmm. with painting. Okay, so... She'd been painting in oil, and she thought, hey, why don't I try out tempera? Because, A, I like to paint, 
<laughs> B, I am inspired by medieval painting, obviously. Okay. Uh, C, I like eggs. You. <laughs> Because you need eggs to make tempera. Yeah. If you will recall from episode three, you need pigment and egg yolk yeah. to make tempera. Yeah. So um, because of A, B, and C, she decided to use tempera for this painting. Yeah, it also lends an effect to her work that feels very fresh and different from her oil paintings, I think. It looks a little bit more transparent, that, just a bit right. more. The, yeah. the tempera, yeah. yeah. Which makes it a little bit more ghostly. Agreed. Ooh. Agreed. We will get into that a little bit more. Uh, but you said it, it feels fresh. Yeah. She had been painting with oil and she... She really layers it on there. And yeah, she does a. But she can be very. Yeah, but she can be very meticulous about it. I think when you say fresh, it kind of feels lighter. It's a little like, too meticulous. Some of her older work. Not a big fan, honestly. Oh really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Pray tell. Pray tell. Oh uh, no, we'll get into it later. All right. Can't wait. So let's imagine the three witches, Elsie, Varro, and Kati, living in this big house. This big sweaty house filled with <laughs> hyenas and. Ex-husbands, All kinds future of husbands. husbands, current husbands. <laughs> you had to name them all out. Yeah. In case we all forgot what it's kind like of a, It's like the, the worst sitcom you can imagine. It's kind of like pre-reality show, too. It's like, what's going to happen? This oh, is, yeah. this is like real. Ter- it's like Terrace, uh, Terrace, ha- uh, Terrace House. Uh, Terror House. This is Terror House. Terror House. Or Open House. Oh, because if it folds open like a dollhouse. Not only is it like a dollhouse, it's like a set. It's just staged, a set. like a set of a sitcom. There's all these different rooms, but you you see it all at once. All the drama happens the drama. out in the open. You can't hide it. Everyone's just up in each other's face. You got your cast of characters in the house. It's like yeah, a sitcom. Basically. It's a recipe for a sitcom. Why are we beating around the bush about it? So without further ado, let's get to the house tour. All right, let's get in the house tour. All right. The first room in our tour will be the dining room. Okay. All right. A young girl rushes into the dining room from underneath an arched stairway that connects to the kitchen, and she's holding up a roasted bird on her way to serve the seated figure at the table. And that arch is just the perfect clearance for that little girl. (laughs) Clearance. Yeah, no one else could get through unless they were crawling. A horsewoman is seated at the table and is probably a person of power as she is seated alone. She has a regal posture and the shadow of a horse. Her hands are in a strange position over the bowl of a green liquid, and she has hooves. For feet? Yes. I was going to say her face doesn't look like a horse face, but then there's a shadow behind it. Yes, That looks like a horse. Or, or... You're not going to like this. Oh, great. Godzilla villain, Titanosaurus. What? Who? The spitting image. Oh, okay. Sure. That thing. Um, Please be sure to include an image as I don't even know what you're talking okay. about. Yeah. To the left, we have a creature with a tree in place of a head with a pep in their step. <laughs> what is that motion you're doing? Pep in the step. Oh, my God. I wish you listeners could see Stephanie's <laughs> movement here. Pep in the step. Okay. Um, so they are entering through the wall because there are no doors. There are only arched doorways and or ladders. Yeah, there's some translucency here. It's passing right through like a translucent door. And they're carrying what appears to be a large gourd with a <laughs> with a small human face. Or a bag of bread. I'm not sure what that is. But kind it does of, have a human face. Um so <laughs> like like here comes Kooky Aunt Trita with her weird ass gifts. Literally no one ever knows what to do with. Like what are you gonna do with this gourd? Aunt, gonna, tre- Aunt Trita. 
Yeah, because the head. She's a tree. Her head is a tree. Yeah, it's good. Like your Aunt Rita. Yeah, I get it. Okay. It's good. Tree ta. Yeah. Peppin stuff. I have a smile. It's good. Okay. The peppin' her stuff. She, Pep- with, she with little root feet. Oh, she doesn't have little root feet, though. She actually has normal feet. No, not normal feet. She has human feet. Okay. That is not, that doesn't have to be normal. Sorry, I didn't mean to be specious. Yeah, don't be specious. On the upper floor, above Aunt Trita, two figures and a cat are waving goodbye to a third figure (laughs) who is waving back as she floats through the floorboards towards the dining table. What is what is so funny? First of all, okay, the cat is not waving. The cat is the waving tail. its tail. Okay. The tail is waving. Right. Yeah, the, the wave is really funny, but it has a turnip head. The person who's waving has a turnip head, and you just glossed over that, but that's okay. The ghostly creature that's floating through the floorboards, yeah. I think they're waving at Aunt Trita. They're like greeting? As she hops on in. Oh. I think whatever it is, it's a, it's a nice gesture to, to welcome somebody in with waving. So beside the horsewoman at the table, there is a chair that appears to have a tiny human head. Mm. And at the horsewoman's hooves, almost under the table, there is a trio of minuscule beings who look like they're in the middle of a conversation. They're they're floating up from the floor, and they look like they're tofu chickens wearing capes. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, just like globular toki. If you can imagine the texture of tofu, like the soft tofu too, not not the extra firm, the soft silken tofu. Ugh. Silken? Yeah. Ugh. Like you touch it and just slides right right on through your fingers. Oh, okay. Ugh. It's okay. You don't have to touch these. Okay. It's okay. It's gonna be all right. As we can see so far in the painting, we start to get a sense of welcoming, of acceptance, of peace. Just like a maybe? nice home, like a cocoon. A safe environment. Yeah. After all the trauma they had been through, this was a way for them to transform their home, right, in real life. It almost feels like this house is operating as like a magic circle for Elsie. Like she's depicting her experience living with her friends in that big house and how welcoming of an environment it was. And I think we we feel that in this painting, right? Yes. We really start to feel that Elsie truly had a feeling of hope, hopefulness mm. in this work. She's, you know, she's excited to to soon be a mother. Yeah, she's she is a home right now, too. She is a home. <laughs> so in the house, they were able to live in the moment and be their true witchy selves. They had elaborate costume parties. They told stories late into the night. They played surrealist games like Exquisite Corpse. And this, of course, before Elsie was pregnant, presumably, <laughs> was all fueled by tequila. Yes, that is correct. Yeah, hopefully. I mean... That's a step up from wine, I gotta say. So Elsie got so comfortable uh, at this point that she actually decided not to attend a very important exhibition for her career <laughs> at the time. In New York City, I should mention. Okay. Far, far away from so Mexico City. She's going to have to City. leave from Mexico. Yeah, I'm not. No. It is 1942. I am not traveling from Mexico City to New York City. I mean, neither was she. She wrote a letter to the curator saying, hey, I've been living here for so long. I haven't like really left i'm very comfortable here i can't make it i can't get i'm sorry i can't get on the zeppelin i need to get on to get the zeppelin i need to get on to get to albuquerque to then jump into a trebuchet to fire myself off into new york city however they traveled back then i guess we won't we we don't don't, don't know we won't worry worry about it. it okay Unfortunately, we don't ever see a photograph of the three witches together, and that is because most often Kati was photographing Elsie and Varro. So she was the third spectral witch. She was the one behind the camera, the floating camera that took pictures of them. (laughs) 
Yeah, pretty okay, much. Cool. Pretty much. Her capturing of these memories shows us the life behind the fantasies mm. of Elsie uh, and Varro's artworks, but it's key for us to understand them. So without Kati having captured any of this, we would not have the context uh, for the environment that these, these fascinating witches were creating in. All right, listeners, back to the house opposite. Let's float on upstairs. We are now at the bedroom, which is on the upper level floor to the right. There is a sickly looking girl in a bed with a red frame and seems to be nearing death. I'm sorry. What is so funny? Uh, it's uh, huh? It's the, the, the you're, you're, I'm sure you're about oh, to get Oh, I'm getting to it. To yeah. it. Oh, you're, don't spoil the surprise now. Uh, <laughs> why am I laughing now? There, there is an insectoid creature standing next to her with its antenna hovering over her. Maybe in attempts to heal her or to make her comfortable. First of all, do you know of any good bugs that would heal or make somebody feel comfortable? No, you don't. Second of all, that antenna is like 24 feet long. If I didn't know better, I would think this was another Varro painting where she's trying to like illustrate for a pharmaceutical company. Oh, dang. It's like a uh, mosquito repellent. Yeah, I agree. Took it there. Where's Felicia? Um, first of all, this is Elsie's world, okay? Things happen here that may not happen in our human reality. Yeah. Another thing is it looks like another Godzilla character, another Godzilla baddie, <laughs> all right? Looks like Megalon. I like how you tell me exactly what it, it is. It looks exactly you, like Megalon. I'm not arguing with you. I have no idea what you're talking about. I okay. have no nothing to argue <laughs> I'm just saying, do we know who purchased this? Was it the future CEO of Toho Films? Who purchased this painting? Yeah. It was not that person. It was not that person. Okay. Well, no. all right. So if this is a death scene, let's say, I think the girl here is probably dying. Okay. I don't think the three witches saw death in the same way that we see death. They faced a lot of trauma and a lot of death in their time. Yes, they did. And I'm sure that would change your perspective on life and death. So the three witches... They weren't afraid to confront death. They they literally had just confronted so much of it. They yeah. weren't afraid of it. And death shows up in all three of their works, including Katis. In Mexico City, she photographed Day of the Dead Sugar Skulls, mm. which represent the dead. Kati was photographing dolls prior to moving to Mexico City, too. So I think she was already kind of interested in that creepy, <laughs> like, body stand-in that dolls have, right? Stand-ins, I'm going to say, yes. A, a soulless body. Day of the Dead is a celebration of death in Mexico, and these otherworldly celebrations are what fascinated the witches about Mexico. The fact that the supernatural was still very much alive in the culture. Mm, I can see that. It was not a thing of the past. It, it was still an everyday thing. Some of that indigenous heritage soaking through the cultural streams. Yes, it was pre-Hispanic, right? So before the Spanish, yeah. and it, it had survived colonization, which mm. is really remarkable. And that's probably also fascinated them as well. Cool. Which is be resilient. Kasi's husband had a near-fatal heart attack uh, while they were living in Mexico City, mm. which was yet another near-death experience she had to face. So she did what artists do, and she confronted that fear of losing a loved one. She confronted an obsession, something that was making her anxious, right? So she, yeah. she, she faced her fear. Yes, thank you. Losing her husband. So in this photograph by Kati called Leonora from Ode to Necrophilia series from 1962. Quite the name. Yeah, she... I guess she confronts death. Through necrophilia? I know. Let's, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. 
It's not quite what you think. Okay. It's a series of black and white photographs. Elsie poses for Kati, and throughout the series, Elsie undresses from a black funeral dress and ends up completely naked. In this particular image from the series, we question if the woman, Elsie, is slowly losing her sanity as she stands in her underwear holding an umbrella and a white mask, all while smoking a cigarette. To us, we actually kind of lose her, if you will, under the shadow of the umbrella. Versus the image of her in the mirror where actually natural light is shining on her on her figure. So you see a crystal clear face and you see that she's like, Full of confidence. Yeah. When really, in reality, she's... She's tempting death. Her hands are full. (laughs) She's she's... smoking a cigarette. There's an open flame on the floor. Yeah, literally, she's about to step on it. Yeah, it's like our room, basically. Uh, Yeah, okay. Just a big death trap. She looks totally sane, totally fine, but she has surrounded herself with hazards. So I just wanted to circle back to necrophilia. Oh, but I wish we... You know, I'd rather not. In this instance, in Kati's series, it is more about... A woman mourning, a woman performing a ritual, being For a romantic. Lost loved one. Yes, being romantic with a loved one, celebrating their memory. And the white mask represents the deceased, right? The loved mm-hmm. one. So it's more of a, it's like the masks that she was interested in. They're carrying a spirit. They're a stand-in for yeah. something. Just Not like an the actual de- dead body. Right. It's. I think it's It's less scary <laughs> than we thought. <laughs> um, it's a little bit, it's more romantic, but it's also kind of sad, right? It's kind of like the Day of the Dead Skulls. Yeah. Only this celebration looks a little bit more different. It's like that scene in Ghost where Bernie Sanders sneaks <laughs> oh, no. up behind that woman. and uh, Demi Moore. Yeah. With his mittens helps her create that uh the pot clay pot. Um I guess I guess so. All right, listeners, we are headed to the portal room. Upstairs in the portal room, there is a large tree with a human face. Of course. And it's surrounded by regular trees. Uh, yeah. Your reg tree old reg trees. Below the face tree, there is a ghostly wooden rocking horse that is suspended in air and there is a girl that is sitting with her head in her hands as a green mist fills the air and coats the floorboards of the indoor forest it's almost like a projection on the wall kind of it's so strange looking because it almost looks like it's underwater too it's all kinds of things yes which I think is appropriate since this room is neither on the first floor nor on the second floor it's everywhere and nowhere all at once Above the room, there is a spectral image of the sick girl in her bed. You remember her back in the bedroom next to Mr. Inspectral? Well, she's floating above the room. We just don't know. We don't know if she's in a different dimension or if she's lucid dreaming. We just don't know. The The girl in the in the image has drawn a protective circle around herself. It oh, seems right. like she's injured. And there's a woman walking towards her from the house opposite, walking into the portal room. There's a little archway door that she's about to walk through. She's wearing red Which, heels. Uh, yeah, those are fabulous. Yeah, and she. it seems like she's on a on a journey to help this woman the trees coming to help and i i think that that is the woman who's in the bed like you said i i'm just i'm stuck on the fact that this woman is not gonna fit in that archway <laughs> she's, she's just gonna not. have to duck she's gonna have to duck or maybe she gets she smaller get as knees. she goes you know what i mean you know what um, that could totally happen yeah. There seems to be a misplaced time here. The parallel universes. They're kind of colliding. Yeah, they're colliding and they don't necessarily, like maybe this was 10 minutes ago and this was like 
current. This is an hour later. You know what I'm saying? Every room kind of has its own dimension, space, time. It's yes. Yeah. Its own dimension, its own pace of time. Linear time in Elsie's world dissolves and every character and every space here is multidimensional mm-hmm. and and transformations are as necessary as breathing and as necessary as death, right? Yeah. All right, listeners, we are heading away from the house opposite and we are headed towards Centaur Tower Landscape by Remedios Varro from 1943. So like in Elsie's A House Opposite, this structure also seems to be a refuge within this strange and foreboding landscape. This bramble bush. Bramble bush. Bramble, brambles. Bramble. Brambles. Uh, <laughs> it's more like a bramble tree forest, if that's a thing. She makes it a thing. That's a, <laughs> that's the thing with these two women, Elsie and Varro. They make you believe what you're seeing. Yeah. It might seem unusual or it might seem fantastical, but I believe that this tower exists somewhere in Varro's world. Absolutely. The wonky perspective Do you remember in the house opposite, there's that one random staircase? Mm -hmm. There's also one staircase here, but also, how does this tower have this whole other second story? It's it's like video game logic. You know what I mean? If you ever played like a (gasps) side-scrolling video game? Yes. It's kind of that logic. Sure. Why not? Video game logic. That's exactly what it is. Now, is this an earlier work of Varro's? It is from 1943. Okay, so around the same time House Opposite was made? A couple years before. Yeah. So this was around the time that she was working for Bayer. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Disembodied eyes, porcupine quills. Get the the floating centaur man dancing on the rooftop. This version of Varro is not my favorite. It's not like the later 50s, early 60s Varro that was... She made beautiful, fantastic work then. This seems to be sort of a transitional period in Varro's life. Agreed. This is more like those bear ads that we talked about in the last episode. You're absolutely right. Yes. They don't feel quite as refined. Right. And if you recall, we did say that she was sort of transitioning from what she was making in Europe, which Mm -hmm. was more... More surrealist. A little bit more like Magritte, I think, is what we said. Yes. Yeah. She's not experimenting much with the paint, whereas in her later work, not only does she have those illustrative qualities that we see here, but she's also using the paint in a way, in ways that only paint can be used. So it it has two things going for it. It has that illustrative quality, but it also has that technical prowess that she became known for. This work is transitory, I would say. (laughs) There are also three figures standing in a circle in this Mm -hmm. work as well, except these three figures are genderless and they're featureless and they almost look like mannequins. So these three figures are in the middle of creating some form of transformation. Right, except they're not so witchy. They're more scientific. Yes. Yes, it's it's more sterile, maybe. Yeah, no, this is a very sterile image. (laughs) Even the bramble looks like it was chopped back. Get the whole thorns off, all the dude. I would off. live here. I mean, I love. Besides the fucking centaur man who's dancing on the rooftop, if I could take a bow and arrow and get and knock him down, uh, oh I, mean, I would live here. Okay, it all looks right. cool. Seems like somewhere like Kanye would live. You know? Oh my god, ultra minimal. Stop. Have his little cult there. Stop. Oh my god, religious cult. He's got a no, I know you're cult. right. I'm just saying stop because you're speaking truth right now. There's just so many similarities to the house opposite. They're standing around this contraption that obviously Varro has invented. Where do you think you could get something like that? I don't know. Definitely not Sir Latov. Nope. <laughs> Can you imagine? Artisanal. Cookies? It's on its way. I mean, it's on its way. 
You know it is. Goop is going to have got, it on their yeah, website. Oh, Goop's definitely going to have it. <laughs> All right, listeners, we are headed back to the house opposite. We're stepping through those parallel universes. Watch your head. Watch your Clearance step. is a little low. Mind the gap. <laughs> All right. To the kitchen we go. Here we find... You think if you dropped your keys in the parallel universe They're gap, gone forever. You can't, you can't get like a, a hanger and try to fish them out? <laughs> No. Or like call down to the centaur man that's like floating around in there and he like throws them up to you. No. You don't need keys. Someone can send you on your way home. Maybe with a pair of ruby slippers. Why would you have brought your keys here? That's my question. I I bring my keys everywhere. You never know. Anyway, let's go on. (laughs) Okay. So here we have three female figures, two light-skinned and one dark-skinned, and they're standing around this giant partially glass cauldron through which we can see a bubbling green gold brew. Mm. Definitely, definitely one day we'll see this at Sur La Table. Yeah, the Absolutely. Alchemist Collection, I think they'll call it. You better patent that yeah. right now. TM, TM. Uh, <laughs> what kind of season do you think they need to put on that thing? Like I don't gold? know. Gold? Like gold oil? I don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll workshop we'll, it. We'll work, yeah. All right. So there are two hens that are patiently waiting their turn to be cooked. They are the size of a giant egg. They're like fat rolling pins, yeah. basically. Um, So they're just chilling. They they seem to understand their role in Elsie's universe here, which is to provide sustenance. Mm. They're not freaking out. They're okay with the fact they're about to become somebody's dinner. And that's okay. They're okay with this. They are standing at the feet of the woman who is stirring the pot. And her back is to us, but we can see her star-strewn. Yeah. I, know, I know where you're going with this cape. Dang, I love this cape. Okay, yeah. this cape is it's just it's full of stars. Okay, Stephanie loves stars. I, yeah, I do. I love stars. I'm guilty. Um, over her right shoulder, you can actually see some of the stars are sparkling with real starlight. Mm. I want this cape. I know. It's distracting. But we're okay. not. No, you can't. We're not talking about we're it. Not gonna get, we're not going to become cape people. You're right. But if I were to wear a cape, <laughs> I would wear this cape. Okay, if you wear a cape, I get to wear a cape. Just keep that in mind. The dark-skinned, bare-breasted woman on the left is extending a forefinger into the cauldron. You know, I don't think I'd want to be bare-breasted next to a a bubbling cauldron. I don't think I would either. Um, The third woman who's facing us is handling the herbs. They seem to be preparing the soup for the horsewoman at the dining table. Mm. So, Steph, in our kitchen... Oh, here we go. am Am I all three of the witches? I'm like the holy... The trifecta, the Trinity witch chef. The yummy Trinity? Yeah, the yummy Trinity. Mm. <laughs> You're just like that horsewoman. Me? Yeah, waiting at the table, just whinnying and stomping. Okay. <laughs> All right. Great. <laughs> okay. Elsie's vision of transformation is complete. The three figures in the checkered tile kitchen could easily represent the three witches, toiling away in this imagined kitchen, creating something magical to nurture all those who inhabit this house. Elsie has painted a home within a home, just like the three witches found their surreal family in Mexico City. No photograph exists of such a scene in real life, but the house opposite is just as good, in my opinion. It was conjured out of thin air, so to speak, Elsie using her imagination. 
It is a more realistic and accurate depiction of the three witches' imaginations more than a camera could ever capture. It illustrates how Elsie interpreted those dear to her, Kati and Varro, as well as the otherwise invisible beings that also existed in Elsie's universe. Stephanie. Russell. We're here. We've made it past the bramble trees that have nicked our hats and our shoes. We stepped over the forest of lit candles. That forest was lit. We jumped over the infinite void and we dropped our keys into the void. We called to the centaur man, but he was not home. We don't even need him where we are anymore because we are in front of the Art Slice Museum on top of the hilltop, surrounded by the candy and condom moat. And we're here. We've carried Lenora Carrington's The House Opposite this entire time, protected it from the bramble thorns? The brambles of thorns? Anyway, we're here. We have to decide if it's going in the Art Slice Museum. Yes. Okay. What do you like about it? I like how accessible it is. Okay. More ways than one. Look at the figures that live in this house. They are all strange. They are kind of weird looking. They're all different. And I would not feel out of place among them. I just feel this welcoming energy that is just so inviting. And it feels familiar. It feels comfortable. It feels like home. Yeah. Even though I don't know these figures, I know that they would welcome me with open arms. I like that feeling. Good. Yes. And I think it's also worth noting that while I say it feels accessible, I don't know what a lot of these symbols mean to LC, but I don't think that matters. In the interim, while we were recording and re-recording and re-recording this episode, I was reading Lenora Carrington's short stories. Oh, yeah. And one thing that really clicked with me is that she paints exactly how she writes. That's right, listeners. Leonore Carrington was a prolific writer. Yeah. So please tell us what that was like, Russell. She is a little bit like Haruki Murakame. Okay, I haven't read him either. Okay, so, so he's a magical in. realist novelist, very famous. His works usually have something strange that happens. Like in an some, ordinary setting. In an ordinary setting, but the people who are, who are coming face to face with that strange thing don't really question it that much. They just kind of accept it as that reality. Okay. Which is the, probably the most stark thing about his work. And so this makes me think of that. I, I was, so I was reading her short stories. The characters, like there's cabbages that are fighting and she's describing them fighting and like throwing off their cabbage leaves as they're fighting. <laughs> her writing isn't bad. It That's just doesn't okay. go anywhere. It is what it is. It is what it is. It's okay. just, it's a strange reality and you face this reality and you just kind of deal with it. And knowing about Elsie's upbringing, how she she really felt like a misfit. It kind of feels like in this painting that she found her cohort of, of misfit friends. Okay. And she's just accepting that reality. It's kind of like how you accept people for their flaws. You accept people for who they are and you just kind of go with it. Oh, yeah. But you said something about the paintings. Yeah, her older paintings, I'm not, I'm not so into because I think she overpaints. <laughs> so they were in oil. Because, yeah. And these were, this particular pieces in tempera mm-hmm. so how it's just they're overdone they're just overpainted i think the oil paintings are a little overpainted she has a ton of work just a, so a, a shit metric ton of work so i say that and i could be totally wrong and i could fall in love with a bunch of her work but it's hard not to compare her to varro since they share so many similarities and they influence each other so much but when i look at a varro painting especially a later stage varro painting in oil and i look at an lc painting in oil i'm going towards the varro every time But this one, I think it's great. I think the tempera really lends a certain quality to the work that was missing from her oil paintings. I don't know if you agree with me. I do. And actually, you've 
you've reminded me of something that I read earlier about Varro's work, her early work. Mm-hmm. It was more experimental right. and less consistent because she was running around Europe trying yeah. to escape fascists. And they're young. They're trying and to they're figure young. out who they are as exactly. artists. It's like how we talked about the, I'm sorry, what was the centaur? Uh, the centaur tower landscape. That's an early, well, I guess a middle stage Varro piece, right? Yes, is when she was working for Bayer. So yeah. it was like after It Europe. feels really controlled and really hesitant. Mm-hmm. Whereas with her older work, she loosens that up. She hones that power. Power that she you has mean her to later be work. controlled. Yeah, lets that controlled aspect breathe a little bit. It, they kind of harmonize, right? And I feel like the house opposite is doing that as well. She's using that tempera in a way that gives it a ghostly feeling, that gives it a translucent feeling, that really aids her her narrative painting that she does. One way that tempera differs from oil is the way you paint with it. They're short brush marks. You She's can't... using a lot of short brush marks. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I think that maybe why it kind of looks like a cloth, if that makes sense. Mm. It's just like a bunch of little fibers yeah. kind of all woven together. So maybe that's what makes it feel kind of light yeah. in that way. But also, depending on how you mix the tempera, the paint can either be more translucent or more opaque. Okay. So I feel like she's definitely playing with that to varying degrees here. Yeah, which I think really lends a quality to the work that I think is missing from a lot of the oil paintings I saw. Like the little pathway that Antrita, I'm <laughs> guessing, just like hopped down. That It has like a sun-drenched quality to it. It's something that you could see out in the world, but it's just a, it's just a simple gradation. You're giving a feeling mm-hmm. instead of just illustrating it. It's a lot of nuances, yeah. a lot of subtle She's letting things. it breathe. Yes. Which is something I think also about her stories where sometimes she doesn't let it breathe. Okay. It's just the story on through. She's just telling you. Well, not all art will allow that. Sometimes message is the message and there's no question about it. Sure. I think you've hit the nail on the head. There's just this nuance here. This may have been a turning point in her work. Like you just said, she's she's very prolific. And I haven't seen all of her paintings, but... I can tell there's a certain point where things just start to turn. So maybe that was Elsie's turning point. It's interesting, too, because with tempera, you have the short little brush marks, and it's almost like a drawing, just just the amount of strokes that you got to you gotta do to make up the whole composition, which is just funny because she was inspired by Italian perdellas, which they're part of altarpieces, right. which are behind altars in a church, which the, what the hell are they called? The so you church, have to see them from far the away. The churchgoers. What are they called? The congregation? <laughs> the, con- <laughs> the congregation. They're not going to be able to get up close and like check out the deets. But with this work, you kind of have to get up close. You got to right. zoom in or you're going to miss the good stuff. These were figures and deities that lived in her short stories, in her reality, and through a house opposite. She's made them just as important to her as biblical figures and saints are yeah. to Christianity. Yeah. So in Christianity, mostly men are part of the story. And this right? is a house full of mostly women. <laughs> we think there are a lot of androgynous figures. That's true, that's true. In Christianity, the few women that are included are either evil or yep. sinful. Like Eve or, or Lilith. Or Mary Magdalene. But in Elsie's world, it's the opposite. <laughs> you get it? Uh. Well, it is opposite. She yeah. includes she includes characters that she made up as a child, which, you know, can range from animals, humans, to objects. She's given cabbages feelings. Yeah. <laughs> Making them fight. Fight yeah. cabbages. In Elsie's world, there's nothing outside of the realm of possibility. It's peaceful. It's harmonious. It's strange looking and odd. Yes. But it's 
oddly comforting. Yeah. It's almost like, oh, it's weirdly like Shintoism in a way. Everything having a soul, everything having a purpose. Every object Every, has yeah. a purpose and we are thankful Valuing for it. Valuing it. Even if you're eating it. Even if you're eating the egg tofu chickens. You have respect for the pencil sharpener right. that sharpens your pencil. Yeah. I don't know why I thought of that. <laughs> I can see why her parents thought she was crazy. You know what I mean? Because most people just, they don't live their lives that way. So it's so great that Elsie did. Her friendship with Kati and Varo, you can tell they're they're creating a home. You can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. Exactly. Who can then become your family. She found her weirdos for sure. <laughs> so the house opposite is the place that the three witches strive to create and strived to thrive in. And I think they did both. So it's going in the museum, I guess. Yes, okay. absolutely. Cool. What about for you? I'm not sure I wanted to be in the museum I think I want it to be the museum. Hell yes. Hell <laughs> Like I want that yes. warm feeling, that 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 lovey feeling, that feeling of caring for one another, that feeling of camaraderie. The feeling of a, an accepting home. Yeah, of an accepting home, of interesting people doing interesting things, taking care of one another. Chickens hopping into cauldrons to be eaten. The smile on their stupid little chicken faces. <laughs> Thanks for showing it to me. Shoot. Yeah, that's way better. <laughs> Let's do some magic and make that happen, huh? Let's do it. All right. In The House Opposite, as well as in many of her other works, Elsie is subverting traditional male-dominated religion by weaving witchcraft into her own personal mythology within her art. Witchcraft does not have one leader, nor does it rely on a set of rules or practices. It's fluid and it can mean different things to different people. For Varro, while she found a sense of peace in Mexico, her friendship with the other two witches provided security, as she was often anxious and superstitious and smoked heavily. She surrounded herself with small objects, quartz crystals, and oddly shaped pieces of wood, all of which to her held magical powers and were of great significance. Kati's obsession with masks, dolls, and death as photographic subjects was her way of shining a light and acknowledging the darker side of the human experience through an otherworldly lens. Elsie wanted to heal, nurture, and protect her friends, going as far as writing spells into her drawings for the other two witches when they were sick. Get better and come drink tequila with me, was the gist. The house opposite is the place the three witches strive to create and to thrive in. The kitchen is the heart of this house, and transformation happens, whether through alchemy, magic, tequila, or whiskey. Behind oh, yeah, the we're scene. in a real kitchen. I see a real kitchen now. Yeah, it's the behind-the-scenes look. This, this was, this <laughs> Is this was, the, where the magic happened? Yeah, circa 2009. This was Elsie's kitchen. Yeah, I understand. This this looks like a prowling ground of a of a, of a cook. It's okay. a world oh, that you don't know about stuff. A chef witch? Yeah, I don't know the chef, world of a chef, chef witch. witch. I don't. I am just the horsewoman stomping my hoof. <laughs> All right, let's tell the listeners what we're looking at here. We're looking at a normal-ass kitchen. We're looking at, like, a table with, like, an oil cloth, like a vinyl tablecloth, a bunch of mismatched chairs. Mm, that, those are really <laughs> bothering me. I'm not going to lie. There's a cluster in the middle of the table, which is, like, vitamins. Looks like she's uh, digging the fish oil, which I also appreciate. There's a bamboo plant. There is mail. I don't know. This <laughs> <laughs> It's a one-stop shop. 
Kind of. Uh, there's just postcards and photos all over the, the kitchen cabinet. Now, I don't understand the logic of having both a toaster and a toaster oven. I Presumably, it, she also has an oven oven. Oh, yeah, there's the oven. Yeah, I think it just depends. If you wanted to warm up French bread, you would need a toaster oven. Oh, okay. It wouldn't fit in a toaster. Okay. Depends. Yeah, this reminds me of my real life Aunt Trita's kitchen. Uh, you have a, a tree aunt. Yes, okay. I have a tree I have not met aunt. her yet. Tia Trita. Okay, okay. Yeah. I see where you're going with that. Mm -hmm. She's not a tree, though. No, she's very much not a tree. Okay. (laughs) Okay. She'll throw you into a kitchen chair and force feed you tamales and tell you about her day. Love her. Anyway, we're getting off topic. So the kitchen for Elsie was a transformative place in which she could reclaim power in a traditionally feminine space. Yeah, okay. So working in the kitchen did not shackle her creativity, but instead it fueled it. Gotcha. So like me. (laughs) You're shackled to the kitchen. I am shackled to the kitchen. Visitors of Elsie's studio have said it was, quote, a combined kitchen, nursery, bedroom, kennel, and junk store, That's, end quote. Yeah. I'm yeah, just, I don't know, but I don't know about that. That's a lot of things. That's a lot of things to have in the kitchen, but go on. Go on. She's doing it all. So far, everything we have discussed has been interior. So within each of the artists, right. their so emotions. The cocoon space of the house opposite. Remedios Varro had that weird geometric place that also had three. Which like creatures dancing in centaur scientists and da- so for some reason a dancing centaur. Um, so their emotions, their psychological state, their imaginations and creativity that was all insular. They also likely struggled to assimilate for a while, or they did not think that they would stay for very long. So, in Mexico City, yes, in okay. Mexico City. So maybe they just thought, why should we assimilate? Should, we're just yeah. we're just waiting out the war. Well, also, I mean, they're just from different cultures too. I mean, I've lived in other countries, and it, it can be hard. Even if you try, it can be hard to assimilate into that culture just because you're not you're just you're always a foreigner. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so all the while they are forming this lovely little family. But remember that they're newcomers. They're foreigners to the local art scene in mm-hmm. Mexico City. At the same time, Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera were the superstars of the art scene in Mexico City. They were champions of Mexico's indigenous culture. They were hostile to foreign influence, and they decried the surrealists as decadent. Sorry, I'm just, when I think of decadent, I just think of like too much frosting on a cake. Well, the surrealists might have worn frosting to an art exhibition because they're crazy kooky surrealists. God, probably, right? God, yeah, no, I mean, just give me, I'm with them. Just give me, just plop down like a fucking bare bones angel food cake just right in front of me. I'll eat it dry with some water. That sounds great. That's disgusting. No, it's, it's that sounds delicious. You okay. don't need frosting. Okay. Uh, so they did not welcome the emigrate artists into their midst. They were mm. like, no thanks. You can keep you and your extra calories over there. Thanks yeah. so much. Uh, it's been said that Frida actually referred to the three witches as, quote, those European bitches, <laughs> end quote. Did she say something about rather, she'd rather like sell tortillas? Yeah, she's something like she hated them so much that she would rather go to the market and sit on the floor and sell tortillas there <laughs> than to listen to their intellectual bullshit. <laughs> Basically, I'm paraphrasing at this point. Oh, that's cold. I mean, she, they felt strongly. Yeah. Remember, though, that at this time, Mexico was finding its identity post-Spanish colonization. colonization. Yeah. So they were very much about Mexico. We will get into Frida yeah. eventually. So while the three witches had come to think of Mexico City as their home, eventually the local artists may have felt betrayed by the government and threatened by the newcomers. Yeah. Right? I totally get that. The history of Mexico City is complicated, and seeing these 
you know, European women kind of move in and just live their lives peacefully. I could see that irking them off. I could see that. That yeah. doesn't make them bad people either. It doesn't make LC or RV or Katzi bad. It doesn't. It's, it's a just complicated. complicated it's right. Complicated. And we touched a little bit on the the history of Mexico in yeah. episode one, which you've kind of summed up there. Um, so it's natural, I think, for Diego and Frida to feel threatened yeah. by by this. It doesn't make Frida there are a lot of Diego them. bad either for doing that. Like, it's just, it's just, unfortunately, it is a complicated situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, the three witches... We've just described like two whole episodes about it. They're mm-hmm. able to live their full potential as women in Mexico. And I'm going to mm-hmm. say white women because they were white women in Mexico when the local Mexican women could not due to cultural expectations. Right. Yeah. As and Frida women. and Diego were more dialed into the indigenous people in Mexico. Yeah. So they were just able to live their lives more independently and more freely, whereas. I mean, hell, like, how much shit did Frida get, you know? But she was pretty, I mean, she was pretty radical. But still, like, she got a lot of shit for it. Yeah. In any case. So in the early 1970s, Elsie actually championed the women's movement. She was responsible for co-founding the women's liberation movement in Mexico. Okay. Which is pretty awesome. So this was the early 70s. So quite a few decades later, but she's starting to give back. Yeah. She she uh, frequently spoke about women's legendary powers and the need for women to take back the rights that belong to them. So moral of the story, know your value, harness your power, and use it for good. And listeners, you can harness your power. With our art assignment this week, Stephanie, what is it? It is create and illustrate your own spell. Only if it's a good spell. None of these bad spells. Good spells only. Yeah. Yeah. So take a spell <laughs> and draw your spell. We're going to include a drawing, uh, paint slash painting of a spell that Elsie wrote for Varro. Is that correct? Yes. It's got some very cool imagery in it. It's got a zeppelin. It's got so some... So weird. I it's think, a whale uh, zeppelin. <laughs> and just go to our Instagram page... Or our website to see this beautiful drawing. Weird image. Love it. (laughs) How weird. But we can't wait to see yours. And listeners, thanks so much for those of you who've already submitted art assignments. We love seeing them. Uh, We are slowly posting them on our website. So don't be shy. You can send them to artslicepod at gmail.com. Or you can just add us to Instagram. Listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts on today's works or any other works that we've covered for that matter. You can send your thoughts to artslicepod at gmail.com. And if you'd love for us to hear your lovely voice, you can send us a very, very, very short audio file that we may play in the future. Yep. Just a short description of what you did or didn't like about the work. Andrew wrote in in regards to the tarot episode, and he suggested an artist named Austin Osman Spar. I hope I'm saying that right. Austin Osman Spar. Spare? <laughs> Spare? Spare? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> but very cool tarot deck for sure. Awesome. So we'll put a link on our website. So check it out. It's really great. I wish we had known about it prior to that. We might have talked about it on the show. Yes, we love any suggestions, listeners. So if you think of any, don't be afraid to send them our way. And a very special thank you to musician Siddhartha Courses for letting us use their music. We hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. And you will probably be hearing more soon. So go to our website to check out their music. We'll link them there. And thanks again to those of you who have reviewed us. Your feedback is so important to us. 
If you haven't given us a written review yet on Apple Podcasts or any other platform, please go ahead and do that. It really helps us be seen. Steph and I do this all by ourselves. We don't have a production company or anything like that. So it means a lot and we love seeing reviews from you all. And we still have stickers. So if you leave a review or if you share the show or leave a review on a different platform besides Apple, I know not everybody has Apple, and you take a screenshot of that and email it to us, we will mail you a free sticker. We are so grateful to each and every one of you. Thank you for helping us make this podcast. Yeah, thanks so much. And the stickers are finite. So if you're listening to this in a year, we probably don't have, we probably can't. Perhaps not. Probably, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, act fast because uh, Stephanie keeps putting them on things. I can't, I can't help it. They're really cool. <laughs> so that about does it for us today. We'll see you next time. And no, your kid could not have painted that. Unless they're a prodigy. Yeah. JK. But then they'll have their own thing and yeah, it won't be the same thing. Anyway, bye. Bye. Bye.